0: I believe, uh, we were talking about the fact that I, uh, had an oatmeal cream pie earlier. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are good. They're very good. Um, I don't know. I mean, was it was uh, definitely a nice snack. Um, it's, it's kind of a depressing thing to eat as an adult though. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's definitely a child's, a child's food. It's not really an adult food,
0: is it? No, not at all. I mean, it probably didn't help that I was just eating it in the dark uh, for dinner. <laughs> then it is an adult food. That's an adult decision. <laughs> Isn't it? That is a choice to be made. That's a great decision.
1: <laughs> you made an existential choice in the moment, and I think it was the right
0: choice. It was a dark one, but I agree. I think it was the right one.
1: Are you drinking an adult beverage now? I,
0: I am. I am. I kept with the drinkin? adult theme. Um, I'm going with, uh, I don't know, probably my favorite brewery. Which is Highland, out of Asheville, my favorite city. It's a Clawhammer Oktoberfest, or October lager. Excellent. Really tasty.
1: I'm drinking possibly the most adult of all beverages. I'm drinking an old-fashioned cocktail.
0: Oh, that's perfect. You one-ups yeah. me big time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's solid, too. I outdid myself. It's really a nice
0: nice beverage. Oh, so, you're patting so. Yourself. so you made it for yourself, and you think it's just fantastic.
1: I made it for the podcast. It's a special occasion. I actually have a little bit of housekeeping to do today, Mark. Um, well, let's hear it, Logan. And we have a, something of a sponsor. Really? For, yeah, for our podcast. There's a man, a, an Internet man named Shane Blackshear. He's got a big old beard, so we're friends on Twitter. And uh, he does, yeah, he does a podcast called Seminary Dropout and, and interviews people. It's a cool podcast. He just inter- interviewed, I believe, N.T. Wright, which is a, which is a cool interview. And uh, anyway, he's starting a, uh, a, pod- or a, um, a podcast course called Podcasting for Everyone. And uh, it's a $150 course, um, and it's basically for anyone who ever sort of thought, like, I am interested in making a podcast. Um, I mean, podcasting is becoming, I think, bigger and bigger, um, especially with the sort of advent of of that podcast serial um, not too long ago. Game changer. Um, That sort of became, like, the, yeah, entree into uh, podcasting for a lot of people. Or for listening to podcasts, that is. Um, so I think there's a ton of people who are interested in in podcasting and, and actually making their own podcast. And um, this course addresses that. It's everything from equipment and tools to you know how to get your podcast onto iTunes, um, promotion, monetizing your podcast. Um, and uh, he's a he's a knowledgeable guy. I think he's done over 100 episodes of his podcast, so he knows what he's talking about. One hundred fifty dollars. It's not, you know, it's costly, um, but I think what you get is uh, is really worth it, um, just because he's so knowledgeable and uh, he really presents it in a way that's um, that's approachable for anyone. Uh, you don't have to, you know, be an internet wizard to uh, to understand understand what he's talking about. And um, uh, if you follow the link in the show notes and uh, put in the code disembodied which is the podcast you're listening to disembodied beard but you'll put in the promo code disembodied you get 25% off the cost of the course that is solid and yeah which is a solid discount i just got 25% off a t-shirt today at kohl's so we're we'll both <laughs> that's the same we're all saving we're all saving money we're all saving money america <laughs> yeah america and uh so we're all saving money, and uh, not only that, but you'll also support us, Mark and Logan, the Beard, uh, to the tune of ten dollars. So hey, everybody wins. Um, I like this capitalism. Right. And uh, so that's that's the main um, housekeeping I wanted to get get through there, uh, and uh, maybe that maybe that uh, offer will will come in at the end of the next podcast. But um, but for the time being, it is. Um, an opportunity uh if you're thinking about making a podcast or you know you have a church that uh needs a podcast or you just want to get on the internet and rant without having to uh edit edit a blog um (laughs) then uh hey check out Shane's uh podcasting course uh, because I think it's a I think it's a cool thing he's a cool guy and he's worth supporting as well so um so do it yeah so thanks for doing that uh, I don't know. What did you want to talk about first today, Mark? Other than eating uh, <laughs> eating children's snacks in a dark room.
0: <laughs> I mean, we could just talk about
1: that for hours. We could. My favorite my favorite snack is the um, the uh, Swiss cake roll. Really? Yeah, yeah. I like to I like to pick off all of the chocolate first off the off the outside. Slowly pick off all the chocolate.
0: Um. Actually, they made a movie about um about this it's called silence of the lambs that is psychopathic because
1: <laughs> i want to enjoy it i don't want to just i don't want to just inhale That's the so thing gross. you know so, gross. so i pick out i pick out off. i pick off all the chocolate and then i un- then i unroll it <laughs> and i eat it and i eat it that way
0: so like the fundamental quality like it's so fundamental to the snack it's in the name that it's a roll you just cancel that
1: hey man i i'm a I have an avant-garde way of thinking through things <laughs> like little Debbie snacks. That's right. Like little Debbie <laughs> snacks. And let's be honest, like all the little Debbie snacks are the same ingredients.
0: Just no, like, no, I, Remixed. I'm, I'm going to fight back because Swiss cake rolls are made of garbage. They taste <laughs> so bad.
1: That's what I'm saying. No, but That's the others, saying.
0: like you can actually just get, I mean, sure. It's, it's like this terribly overloaded sugary taste, but Swiss cake rolls, Takes it to another level of just bad. I disagree. It's whatever that. It's it's the combination of that faux chocolate fondant type like type stuff. Oh, it's and the cake is just dry and gross.
1: Right. It's tasteless. It's a taste. It's it tastes like misery. (laughs) I, I understand. But I but I inject you know I inject a little a little joy into it through my process. It's all about process. If
0: we send. Uh, Swiss Cake Rolls, It Tastes Like Misery. Do you think Little Debbie would run with that if we send that Probably in?
1: Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. I wouldn't think so. It'd, be,
0: it'd get me think... to buy a box.
1: Well, sure, but we're a special breed.
0: Um, but as far as stuff to talk about, um, I don't know. I think one of the most interesting things I read this week, uh, we could start there, which was the uh, Stephen Colbert uh, write-up for GQ, which... I'll just say that it was, I think what made it so good was there was nothing in there that I was surprised by uh, because I, I follow Colbert enough and I've read enough of, you know, his real life persona and things he said and know enough about him that nothing in there really kind of caught me off guard. Uh, what kind of struck me about the article, though, for a guy that's going to be such a mainstay for this broad segment of population, his theology is, is a narrower kind of orthodox thinking. That I don't feel is gonna match.
1: Yeah, that's probably true, and and you know I don't think it, I don't think it matches like middle America, no, necessarily or like sort of moderate, moderate mainline Protestants. But but here's the, here's the thing, like I don't think it matches that, but I also think that at least at least from my perspective, I saw a lot of people celebrating what he said from from the from the stance of like progressive christianity mm-hmm. i actually i actually don't think progressive progressive christianity can contain what he's talking about either maybe maybe no sort of narrowly defined ideological christianity can i think that's probably maybe that goes without saying but i definitely <laughs> i don't know as a person who's sort of been steeped in progressive Progressive Christianity, I actually think that progressive Christianity totally fails totally fails to contain anything that Colbert said. And so I th- find it a little ironic that my way into this article was through people who were sort of celebrating some of the theological statements he was making. sure in in particular, this idea that suffering is a gift yes and that joy and that joy and suffering. Parad- are paradoxically joined and linked and that that really any distinction between them is sort of our own failure to understand or comprehend the mystery of
0: life and the eternal. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of his main thrust, I think. Sure. Um, well, I mean, he's quoting Tolkien correspondence with a priest and it writes back to him. You know, the priest was arguing, you know, is your, uh, what does it say, your mythos sufficiently doctrinaire, because it treats death not as a punishment for sin, but as a gift. And Tolkien writes back, what punishments of gods are not gifts? And Colbert is hammering in on that um, and taking that to the next step of saying, to approach everything with gratitude, including suffering, which the lover and inherit of Buddhism in me wants to take that on its own turn, but I can't do that. It's, I mean, wanting to do that from a Buddhist angle is, is an appropriation of of what he's saying, and it's not—it's not what he's saying. What he's saying is just profoundly orthodox, right? right? I
1: mean, it's ca- it's very Catholic, it's
0: ca- and he admits it is Catholic.
1: And I mean, it, but the, the interesting thing about the article is that the article does exactly what you're resisting in yourself, <laughs> which is every every time, every time Colbert says something that's like straight down the line Catholic, the author of this piece says that sounds like a Buddhist sutra, or that sounds like, or he took a yogic breath or whatever, a deep yogic, yeah. you know, yoga breath. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> like, that's not what, that's not what Colbert is doing. Like Colbert is not accessing Buddhism. No. Although I, th- I, d- I, do think that there are parallel spiritual truths at work.
0: Well, what really, where I see the difference in, in, And we can circle back. But what I I saw the difference as and what made me stop and say, no, I can't. Well, number one, trying to line up faith like that is not what you do, which did annoy me about the article that the author was doing that. You know, but, but part of what he's doing is saying that, you know, even if he doesn't like something that that is a point of suffering, he's bringing it back into the divine life and saying that that that's still something to look at with gratitude, which is not what at least my own limited Buddhist experience of encountering suffering is all about because that's acknowledging for it for what it is and sitting with it as suffering and not trying to (laughs) say necessarily that I'm grateful about this. It's saying I am what I am about this.
1: Right, you just acknowledge it, it. Right.
0: And and you do that, you know, with the reverse with joy as well. But yeah, I feel like I feel like you're really hitting on something that so many people in my social media feeds who were progressive Christians were, you know, pull quoting this article to pieces. That's not gonna sit with progressive Christianity. This.
1: No, and and I mean the reason the reason for that is good. The, the reason for that is that through a lot of Christian history, there has been a trend for or white men to uh, plant crosses, mm. right, where they don't belong, sure. and to tell people that their suffering is sort of part of a greater good that they should just get over. Mm-hmm. And so, so because of that, progressive Christianity has sort of run the other way. And embraced social justice, embraced um, marginalized people, but has done so, I think, primarily from a from a context of privilege. Mm. It's like a, it's like running away from these ways in which we've dealt death um, into into people's lives where they were they were asking for a life-giving response. And I think that Colbert's response is fundamentally life-giving because it's done in such a careful pastoral way. Yeah. Like he's been pastoral with himself, Mm -hmm. but, but I think that, but I think that, I think that progressive Christianity stands on this hill of privilege and then preaches, (laughs) preaches to marginalized people and says like, here's the way, here's the way to do it. So it's like a redoubling. (laughs) It's like pulling crosses out of the ground where maybe a cross needs to be, where maybe the reality of God's suffering needs to exist in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Like the. Jesus needs to be on the cross in this community. We can't just take him off because we don't like it and it's kind of yucky. Like <laughs> he's got to be there, and people he needs to, he needs to be there on the cross because God needs to suffer with those people. And um, I think I think we have to be able to do social justice, social transformation, along with along with the reality of God's suffering on the cross, like from a, you know, doctrinaire Christian stance. That's more important than sort of straight up and down progressive Christianity, which is, you know, post-liberal, post-modern, you know, um, stressing, taking the Bible seriously, but not literally, all that kind of stuff, you know, which I think is all important stuff to talk about, but which I think can miss, can miss some of the, Deeper truths of what Colbert is talking about in this piece, which has spoken to people for two millennia.
0: Sure. Well, and you know what I'm hearing is that from you is that progressive Christianity is is um, it's missing the mark in the same way that the opposite side, the conservative, bordering on fundamentalist position, is too, because they're both unnuanced. I mean, right, exactly. And that's what Colbert is saying. Is his quote is. So it'd be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. I can hold both those ideas in my head. I mean, it's that, that's what he's getting at, that there's a nuanced way to think about it. I think that there's room for some pushback there, which, I mean, you've already been doing by saying, you know, we've got to think about it in terms of where is this punishment of God talk? Where is that hurtful? But then the suffering talk, where is that helpful? Uh, Oh, another quote that's been, uh, that's been kind of creeping up this was one thing and i was going to see what you thought about this one thing that he's talking about is after his dad and brothers die he says of his mother by her example i am not bitter broken yes bitter no i think there's some room for bitterness though i mean i don't want to get rid of bitterness i i I see what he's saying and i think that to end up in that position is the healthy position
1: I, I think I think what you're touching on right now is a nice way to <clears throat> sort of find resolution for what we were talking about before. and that is the fact that Stephen Colbert has been through it, yeah, right? He lost his dad, He lost his brothers. He has he still carries this pain with him, but he's he's sort of worked through all of that. And he doesn't say that he immediately went from pain into like a healthy acceptance of suffering, right, right. Like he went through bitter you you need you have to use bitter in order to in order to work through your pain, and if you just try to suppress it or put it somewhere else or say, "This is just my cross to bear," like you haven't done the work. like you need to sit down and do the work of feeling bitter and feeling your feeling that pain, feeling that suffering
0: so suffering comes with homework.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, that's a perfect way to put it. And, you know, and if you don't do that homework, then you really are going to get stuck in in bitterness sometime. Sure. Because it's going to come and it's going to come and bite you um, sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And that takes a maturity that, that sitting and suffering and feeling tension and <sighs> sort of knowing that this is what life is in a certain respect mm-hmm. is how is how we move through through our pain into something. Else, where we can be broken, and that that brokenness can speak into our lives and into the lives of other people in a way that is life-giving. Sure. So that's what that's what is missing from the sort of doctrinaire cross-planting um, that disregards the suffering of people. But we also we also can't get stuck. We can't get stuck in suffering itself. Like there has to be a tension between bitterness and brokenness and suffering and whatever the opposite of suffering is (laughs) right like struggle right like like suffering might lead to struggle but you can get stuck in struggle and sort of not see any of the joy of what
0: life is i think maybe a way to kind of go about that is is to see these as tools i can see bitterness being for the person that believes that they can have some dialogue with god if you believe that there can be this dialogue there, bitterness can be a great catalyst for.
1: you ever read the Psalms? Right. It's like yeah. every other that's one a is bitterness. Bitter factory, right there. Yeah, right. Like go to the bitter bitterness Costco and pick up some bitterness in the Psalms, and you'll be, you know, <laughs>
0: like that's a that's a it's all in there, which is not something that contemporary America wants to think about, right? No, not at all. Um even even in progressive Christianity which wants to do the conversation and the work of social justice, which really gets at origins of bitterness and suffering and pain and wants to work through those, even that, I don't know. I don't feel like it wants to deal with with the everyday realities of it all the time. I don't know what I'm trying to
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that progressive Christianity, and especially this so- social justice angle of of progressive Christianity, wants to use self righteous anger that comes out of bitterness as a tool to gain power. Yes, which is a, which is different than which is different than acknowledging that suffering and bitterness and anger exist, and then calling on our life together and the truth of sort of God's suffering with us to deal redemption into society.
0: Well, and I think more of, uh, yes, I think you're right. And I think what's more insidious is this campaign to fix all suffering and brokenness and and really ignore those kind of crucial statements of, you know, people like Jesus who, who are saying this is always going to be with you. It's not a nihilistic thing that I think Jesus is doing there, but just a realistic thing. And I think that a lot of progressive Christianity doesn't want to live in that realism. We've got to find a way to live in suffering as a daily reality. Not that we can't work to fix these problems, but that even if we fix these problems, we don't fix people's suffering. Right. We have hope, but we're not um, naive yeah which is i i think that for me that's the biggest turnoff of contemporary progressive christianity i feel like there's a real streak of naivety in there
1: right the biggest turnoff to me is that it's all just jargon <laughs> I and
0: mean, I, and praise and worship songs
1: <laughs> right i i think that people i think that people have in a, in a lot of ways sort of turned off their capacity to think and they've they've replaced they've replaced a conservative doctrine with a progressive doctrine and it feels like they're
0: thinking but really they're just using a bunch of jargon that sort of helps you think well and that's one of the beautiful things that the Colbert piece is doing it's giving you it's shining a light on the fact that Colbert is a person who has emerged from a system that I'm not trying to say that that uh I'm not trying to glorify all of orthodox theology, I'm, what I am trying to get at is that the theological system he's coming out of obviously made him think and taught him how to think about these doctrinal issues. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about right? it. Right? Because obviously, he's a layperson doing a theologian's job here, right?
1: Oh, he's, he sounds an awful lot like a priest, yes. you know? I mean, somehow he came, somehow he came through that. I mean, he also went to undergrad and got a philosophy you know, right, major. Right. So he's, maybe that's part of I mean, it too. I mean, he's not but...
0: uneducated by any stretch of the imagination.
1: <clears throat> no, but I, I do think that... Um... I do think it's interesting that I think he was equipped by, you know, whoever his sort of faith leaders were and probably by his family and his experience as well. Sure. Um, he also talks about reading just stacks of books as a kid, which there's like no better education. You know, I just hope my daughter just wants to
0: read stacks of books. That would be amazing. Well, that's the only present she'll ever get from me. So
1: Well, good. <laughs> Uncle Uncle Mark can, can keep her rolling in books. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, I think that... I think it's so interesting, like the accidents of our upbringing, because I know Catholics who are unthinking robots. (laughs) I think that's so fascinating, you know, that, that you can be sort of steeped in this background, and for one person it comes out one way, and for the other it comes out another, you know, sort of an opposite. That's kind of beautiful, I think. It is beautiful,
0: and that's the hope for any of us that do theology, right? Is that everybody would be able to do this kind of thinking. Everybody would have this basic set of tools to think through this part of our being.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's, I mean, in a in a church context, I think it's what we're all called to. Then why is nobody doing it? Well, because we're really bad at it. We're really, really bad at explaining, you know, that it can be done. It's sort of been reserved for an elite class of people educated at Vanderbilt University Divinity School you know those those jerks or wherever or Yale or Emory or you know Duke like Duke is probably the worst about it but um <laughs> <laughs> I like to I like to take a swing at Duke whenever I can oh, I'll do so the same thing. yeah I don't know I, I think that I think it is what we're meant we're meant to do we're not supposed to have a as protestants we're not supposed to have uh, sort of people who are set us uh, set apart to do our theology for us right it's supposed to be part of life and um Stephen colbert shows that right um and he does it with humor and he drops the the fuck word here and there and you know it's um it's he's just a he's like a human being like that's that's the main thrust i got out of the piece is like this guy is a human being like he he's he knows how to be a human yeah, being he's aware of it <laughs> Right, he's totally aware of it, and I'm not there. I'm like not even close to where he is, and so I just I just strive to be as human as he uh, is.
0: Let me just tell you, it's great once you get here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so so some of our some of our talk about tension, I think, and sort of sitting in that tension and and paradox um, plays into something else we were talking about, which is uh, football. Football starting. And um, it is. I I have a great love for the Green Bay Packers. I actually think that I like the Packers more than I like football. <laughs> and uh, like I, football, I can take it or leave it. But the Packers, they could play any sport, and I would follow them.
0: I mean you have a great love for the Packers. I have a great uh, tolerance for the Titans, <laughs> for the Tennessee Titans.
1: Um, but you're a, I, I but try you to are... be a
0: fan. I try...
1: But you are you're a Roll Tide fan. You're an Alabama that's fan, right? right College so.
0: football is, is my purview, but uh, kind of. But the subject matter we're about to touch on uh, goes for both. So.
1: Yeah, I think so too, and and that's the fact that there's there. Are, I think the things that I dislike about football, the things that I dislike about it outweigh the things that I like about it quite a bit. Yeah, that's where I'm at as well. And so you're sort of faced with this dilemma of sort of saying, like, can I continue to support a sport which is invariably nationalistic, jingoistic, misogynistic, and frankly, just brutal? Sure. It's a brutal sport,
0: which churns turns people's up. Yeah, I mean, speaking of it, just, I mean, purely biological, it's, it's inhumane, Right.
1: Oh, no, it's totally inhumane i think the average the average stay in the league is like 3 years or something like that and the people who we celebrate you know the celebrities who come out of the game stay for years and years but they tend to be either elite physical specimens or they are you know quarterbacks <laughs> uh who get who get touched a little bit less right than the than a running back or or a, an offensive lineman or something like that and so, yeah, just physically it chews people up. Mentally, it deals some some pretty significant injuries as well. we're seeing that more and more. Yeah, we're seeing that through the whole concussion debate, that or controversy or whatever. Especially last season, we heard a lot about that. So there's all these terrible things about it. Which, what I love about it, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I like being part of something bigger than myself. I see a Packer fan on the street, and I I will go out of my way to say go Packers (laughs) to them. And, uh, I mean, I feel like we have, like, this um, intimacy between us just because of that shared love of the Packers, you know? And so there's that. And then there's just the beauty of the game. I think that a lot of people who criticize football don't see the beauty of bodies in space and the way in which football... In my opinion, is like a perfect expression of that in sports, in a way that more fluid sports like basketball and soccer just don't really contain uh, to such a to such a degree where everybody like stops playing for a second, resets, and then it's like time to re- to do it over again. Yeah. You know, um, so that that beautiful sort of chess match or ballet is such a compelling thing, I think. (laughs) But is it compelling enough for me to keep watching when you know Ray Rice is beating the hell out of his girlfriend and Junior Seau is shooting himself in the chest so that his brain can be studied because of the concussions that were sort of swept under the rug by the NFL for years? You know, if the NFL was a cigarette company, I don't think I would have as much tolerance for their behavior. (laughs) Anyway, that's my long
0: solilo- soliloquy on that. Well, no, I mean, that that captures it, right? It's this dilemma of... And it's one I have, too. And and my... I guess what I have to add is, is uh, you know, you brought up... Um, my primary fandom when it comes to football is University of Alabama. And being from Alabama, especially small town, but it, really it's anywhere in Alabama. Being an Alabama or an Auburn fan is about identity. Uh, it's about... Uh, that gets into family and regional and social politics, like all of it. So there's that added layer. But then, yeah, in addition to all that, so having grown up with it, it being just a part of daily life, I enjoy the game. And the typical human animal part of me enjoys the same things about it that I'm sure. Romans enjoyed about going to see the gladiatorial games like
1: yeah for sure when I see
0: a huge hit and I see somebody laid out my first thought is not are they still alive
1: (laughs) that poor man
0: no my first thought is
1: oh that's that's my first thought (laughs)
0: oh that's amazing if we're all being honest with ourselves it's the first thing we think when we see like a horrific car accident too but that's the thing right like we every once in a while we get a glimpse And it's become increasingly more frequent. We get a glimpse into the brutalities of this game. And I I would say that at some point there has to be this ethical conversation about, is it right to keep watching? But the problem is, is I've had that conversation with myself multiple times. And guess what? I'm still geared up for football season.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I've I've had that conversation with myself probably like five seasons in a row.
0: And it's one of those things where I'm incredibly hypocritical if I had kids, I know definitively they would not be playing football, but yet I'm going to tune in every Sunday uh and every Saturday uh and probably Monday and Thursday and you know and check this out and the spectacle is something I kind of can't pull myself away from. So I'm not sure, I mean I think I've got to be really frank with myself and come up with an answer to the question what is it going to take for you to not watch this game anymore and what other trivial thing which it is it's it's grown men playing games and we can talk about all the cultural and social value that people think the game has and that the organization of the nfl has or that the organization of the ncaa has they're both like really horrific organizations right
1: oh for sure but we can... I think the
0: the the NCAA is worse in my oh, opinion oh the NCAA than... is the straight up devil
1: <laughs> practically in practically every respect yes
0: no it is it's
1: I mean the, the guys who play in the NFL if they play their cards right become millionaires sure the, the people who play in the NCAA are
0: indentured servants at best <laughs> all that said they still get my time they still get my money and I don't know where that ends yeah I don't um, either and I don't I don't think it's going to be any level of conversation that I'm going to be able to have with you or myself or anybody else because I see the I read the stories that are awful and I see the plays happen that are awful and I we're all aware. I just don't know at what point this at what point I can kind of really honestly address the elephant in the room. I mean, for me at this point
1: at this point in my life, I can honestly say that the only thing that will stop me from watching football is if the city of Green Bay, Wisconsin, is nuked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the if, if the city of Green Bay, Wisconsin, becomes a hole in the ground, yeah, then I'll then I'll stop watching football. But I think somebody could die in the field, and I would keep watching. I mean, I, I ha- just to be like perfectly honest, like I feel that in my guts, and like something else would have to change in my life, or the game would have to become soccer you know for me to stop watching <laughs> i mean right like the game like the quality of the game would have to i'm not saying well, that you, i'm not saying the soccer is not a quality sport like people like you know billions of people like soccer yeah. for some reason but no but you're saying that the, i'm such a jerk Oh well, yeah but the, fundal, the fundamentals the would have
0: to of the game change have fundamentally, to change. fundamentally
1: for, right um right the, the game would have to change fundamentally in a in an obvious way Overnight, probably,
0: for me to stop watching. But that's the thing you bringing up, death on the field. Like the legacy of this game that we're watching is deaths on the field. People used to die on the field frequently in the beginning days of this game.
1: Right, early, early in the game, people, people said like, there's no way this is gonna last because it's too brutal. And that's back in the day when, you know, horse racing and 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 uh, baseball were the most popular sports in in the country. Sure. Uh, that didn't hold out to be true. That, that it was too brutal. So
0: it's getting, I think, less brutal in some ways. I think it's getting less brutal, but I think the national tolerance here for that brutality is getting lower. And it may take five or six generations to die out, but I think this sport has an expiration date if, if it can't guarantee the... The safety of its players, with media being the instant phenomenon that it is. We're going to, from now on, hear every single story that's like Junior Seow's, where a guy who's brain damaged from taking too many hard hits throughout his life blows himself away. And we know exactly why he did it. Uh, we know the cause, and we know the efforts of the leading organization to cover it up. And I think we're going to hear every single story. <laughs> From now on. Oh, for sure. From now on. now on, on we're yeah. going to hear every single story about that, and I think the tolerance for that is just going to, even if it's not super vocal, and fans like us don't stop watching the game, it, eventually that will translate into, uh, well, parents just don't want to subject their kids to that, so no more players.
1: Right. I think that people being super vocal about it is actually in a in a funny way a good thing for the NFL and for football in general because it means that people care enough to say something what you don't want or what the corporation that is the NFL doesn't want is people to just sort of shrug and stop watching. Right. And I think that that's happening more and more because I can kind of feel that in myself. And I'm sure if I was a, a less, less of an idolater, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what we're, I, I mean, that's what we're like creeping around this whole conversation. Right.
1: Right. I mean, everybody worships, you worship. everybody worships something. And for me, it's, it's football. And I think that, you know, when that deity stops sort of having its sway over you, you don't scream and shout about it. You just go find another thing to worship right. or you, you know, whatever, pay more attention to your kids <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that, that that resignation is, is sort of... Um, is the is the most damning thing that uh, than any anything that functions the way football does in our society can face. There's probably I think that I think you're right. There's more and more of that, and it's just it's quietly happening. So so maybe that'll happen to me one day, um, but I'm ah, not not quite there yet. I doubt
0: it, man. Uh, I don't. I don't. Like, what are the odds on you being a better person? Well, to switch to uh, to kind of go to a lighter topic before we go. So earlier this week, you sent me an article about. Um, about sandwiches Mm -hmm. and so this is an article from the atlantic that you sent asking what is a sandwich and and you can talk some more about this article but i'm sitting here as make as i'm making sandwiches which i do daily thinking all right this fits the definition this is a sandwich i'm an american hero (laughs) right now because this is
1: (laughs) which is also a sandwich a hero oh
0: good oh you suck (laughs) What a terrible joke. Yeah,
1: right here. Hero Hero Hoagie, Torpedo, Grinder, Submarines, and other such sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, definitely a definitely a sandwich. Um yeah, it's a funny article. It's like a little it's a little bit of like pop philosophy on the Atlantic. And they have a cool video along with it too. Actually, I think it went up September tenth, twenty fourteen, is what the byline says. So it's been around for a while. I just came across it, happened to come across it this week.
0: Oh, had you caught up on all your New Yorker articles? So you were just going back through.
1: Yeah, when when I when I run out of when I run out of the New York the five New Yorker articles um, spread across three devices, um, so that's really fifteen that I get every week or every month. I go to the Atlantic, which is the which is an inferior product, but still entertaining. Right. And so they lay out a basic definition, and the basic definition. Which they then quickly, they quickly negate. It's really a strange thing in the video. The basic definition is that a sandwich is two pieces of bread-like product. So it has to be like a carbohydrate, mm-hmm. right? Two pieces of that are not joined with fillings in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that's like the loose, broad definition.
0: And the filling can't just be condiments.
1: I... I actually disagree with that part of the definition, because you can have a ketchup sandwich. That's
0: the thing. Like, as a as a poor kid in rural Alabama, a mayonnaise sandwich is a sandwich.
1: Yes. Yes. Is it gross?
0: Yeah. But oh, it's, it's a terrible. sandwich.
1: But it's a sandwich. So, to me, what the definition is, is two pieces of bread, which are unattached, which have something in between them that they, that you then eat. So that can be two pieces of bread and, you know, a slice of turkey and mayonnaise and you eat that. Uh, let's just do a little a little pop uh, uh, survey here. Okay, right. Mark. Two pieces of bread with
0: cheese in the middle. Okay. That's a sandwich.
1: A roll, right, okay. attached on one side with a hot dog in the middle. Is that a sandwich? Uh,
0: no, not a sandwich.
1: Okay, a tortilla. Nope. With nope. <laughs> traditional san- with traditional sandwich filling, not a sandwich, not a sandwich, not a sandwich. Okay, a pita is also not a sandwich, right? Which they say is like, like, th- fifteen seconds after they present this definition, they say a pita is a sandwich. No, a pita is not a sandwich. A pita is a pita.
0: <laughs> right, it has its own thing.
1: And a euro is not a sandwich no. because a euro is just a folded over piece of, a folded over piece of. P- of PETA.
0: Okay, so here was, okay, here's the one I really wanted to ask you about. Because the first example, right before PETA, so they give their four rules in this video. One of which we disagree right. with. Even so, with the three valid rules <laughs> that we uh, accept. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> the first example they give as fitting these definitions is a burger. Is that a sandwich? I think you so. you think a burger is a sandwich?
1: Yeah, because it's, it's, um it has the, it has two pieces of bread, which are, mm-hmm. Like unattached, and then it has fillings in the middle. So if that filling is a, if that filling is a chicken breast, it's a sandwich. And if it's a hamburger, it's also a sam- a piece like a ha- the hamburger part of the
0: burger is the meat. Logically, I understand what you're saying. Emotionally, I can't join you there. <laughs> and I can't, so and I... so
1: in your in your guts, a hamburger is a hamburger, right. which is its own it's special. It's its
0: own thing. And if it's chicken, of course it's a sandwich, because nobody wants a chicken burger.
1: Well, some people do. Places sell them, you know? I don't know. I'm sorry. that's Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what you're saying is that a hamburger holds such a special place that it transcends the sandwich and becomes its own right. thing. Okay, I can, go, I can go there with you. I can go I mean, there you with
0: don't you. Have, I think now I'm kind of disappointed in you for not sticking to your guns, but... I I welcome you.
1: I I still think it's a sandwich. (laughs) I mean, I still think it's, I I still think it's related to like the sandwich family, but I can, but I can see why someone would make the mistaken move of saying that it's its own category.
0: I just was kind of just like, I agree. This was a very fun article. I was kind of distraught by the number of things that were on here that were listed as sandwiches.
1: By the way, I want to say that an open-faced sandwich
0: is a sandwich, even though it doesn't hold to your own definition. No, because it doesn't have the second piece of bread.
1: It does though, because the, the other piece of bread is metaphysically present. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sometimes sometimes it's even physically present. Sometimes you'll get two pieces of bread. each one can, each one containing the filling of the sandwich, which then you could you could in theory, construct at the table. So you're
0: saying that second piece of bread that's still back in the wrapper, like back in the the package of bread, feels existentially yes. connected to, to the sandwich it didn't get to be a part of.
1: They're not only existentially they're not only existentially connected, they're in a state of quantum entanglement. <laughs> when you eat the other when you eat the other piece of bread on a deep philosophical and and physical level you'll experience the sandwich that you just ate because it was meant to be a part of that sandwich and, and and it is in fact part of that sandwich so an open-faced sandwich is a sandwich
0: eating two pieces of bread for the price of one is the best weight loss solution i've ever heard of
1: that's right we should we should pitch this to somebody a weight loss person don't you agree <laughs>